This is Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Today's episode is the last of our first season of the podcast. We've loved hearing from you, and please keep commenting wherever you listen to your podcasts. Of course, you can always reach us by email. That's Behind the Breakthrough, all one word, at gmail.com. There's so many UHN researchers pursuing cures and new treatments, so if you'd like to hear a season two of the podcast, please let us know. Now, on to the final episode of season one of UHN's Behind the Breakthrough. Our guest today is Dr. Donald Weaver, award-winning senior scientist and co-director of UHN's Kremble Brain Institute. Dr. Weaver is a pioneer in the search to cure Alzheimer's disease. He joins us in a minute, but first, here's the backstory on Dr. Donald Weaver. Growing up in North Bay, Ontario, while his classmates were outside playing hockey after school, Don could usually be found reading in the library. In fact, by age 12, he was plowing through the works of Greek philosophers. He was especially drawn to the teachings of Democritus and his groundbreaking theory of the atom. Democritus found that if you cut a stone in half, each half has the same properties. And if you keep cutting, you end up with a piece so tiny, it can no longer be divided. For young Don Weaver, the lesson was, complicated things can be understood when you break them down to their essence. Ever since, he's been applying that lesson to understanding the brain in his search to discover a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Donald Weaver, Senior Scientist at the Kremble Brain Institute, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Thank you. Don, let's start with what is Alzheimer's disease? Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. So dementia simply is a chronic, progressive deterioration in brain function, typically to the extent that the individual is no longer able to care for themselves. There's lots of different types of dementia, but certainly within our society, Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia. It's characterized by several features such as clumps of proteins in the brain appear. Uh, These proteins are called amyloid and tau and they clump up. And when that happens, then this person has Alzheimer's disease. How did researchers land on these two proteins, tau and beta amyloid, as being a cause of Alzheimer's? That is a touchy question, whether or not amyloid and tau are the causes of Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease has been around a long time. Alzheimer's described it very early in the 1900s. Dr. Alzheimer's? Dr. Alzheimer's described it very early in the 1900s. And it's been around and people appreciated it. And, you know, for years, people thought it was normal aging or something like that. It's not. It's a disease. It's a genuine disease. And in the 1980s and 1990s, something called the amyloid hypothesis became popular. And so the amyloid hypothesis is that these clumps of proteins called amyloid uh, are the cause. And this really arose because people were starting to look at brains of individuals who had passed away from Alzheimer's disease, and they saw these clumps, and they analyzed them, and they noticed that they were composed of these proteins, amyloid and tau, and that's really where the impetus for that came from. Whether or not they're the cause, that's still something that is very hotly argued and debated. I'm curious, what happens to them in the case of brain disease? Okay, so amyloid is a peptide, so a small little protein. As long as it's by itself, you're okay. When you get two together, so they're forming a dimer, so you have two together, or three together, which is a trimer, these small little clumps of them are very toxic to the brain. They literally beat holes into brain cells. Once they start to clump, 
they become toxic to brain, and that destroys the brain. So a normal brain weighs 1.3 kilograms. When you die from Alzheimer's disease, your brain weighs 800 grams. You've lost half a kilogram of brain. That's a lot of brain to lose. Do they cause the brain degeneration, or is it they worsen it? Once again, that's open to debate. I'm in the group that believes it causes the problem. And so that amyloid clumps, and when it clumps, it starts to destroy brain cells. That's called the amyloid hypothesis. It's been around for years, and the reason it's controversial uh, is that previous attempts to design drugs around it haven't been so successful. So if the drugs don't work, is the hypothesis right? I would argue it's not the hypothesis that's wrong. It's the drugs that are wrong. They haven't had the right molecule. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what are the other theories on the degeneration of the brain when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's? There's uh, multiple other ones. Another current very popular one is that it's due to inflammation of the brain. And so you hear people saying, oh, it's arthritis of the brain. It's an inflammatory disease. There are other individuals who believe that it is due to mitochondria. So mitochondria are the little energy packets that are within every cell and that it's some fundamental disease of them. So it goes on and on. There are a variety of different theories. All of them have pluses and minuses associated with them, whether or not they're you know, strong or weak. But the amyloid hypothesis certainly is the one that has attracted the most attention and probably continues to do so. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but why don't we know with certainty – the brain is the most complicated organ that we have. And you, know, and you like to hear that the brain is the most complicated thing in the universe. I don't know. We haven't been to every place in the universe to really make that statement. However, I am fond of saying, you know, if space is the final frontier, brain is the ultimate frontier. That from a neurologist speaking in an unbiased way. You know, so it's not like we're trying to sort out uh, a, a trivial problem. This is really very, very complex and very, very complicated. The other issue is, is the clinical trials. If you're doing a clinical trial, say, for an antibiotic, you give it to the patient within several days, you know if it's going to work. If you're doing a clinical trial in Alzheimer's, you've got to give it several years to see if it's actually going to work. And so all of these are hurdles, are impediments, which really make drug discovery difficult and really make it difficult to know if the compounds that we are developing are of any value or not. So what's the prognosis for someone suspected of having this disease? Right now, the prognosis is not good. It also depends on the age you are when you first get Alzheimer's disease, which brings up the other question, is it Alzheimer's disease or is Alzheimer's disease a group of diseases? Because if you have a person who is 52 and gets Alzheimer's disease, it moves rather quickly in that individual versus, say, the 80-year-old in whom the disease tends to progress much more slowly. Huh. And so, you know, you go... Maybe it's not even the same disease. They just seem to have a common endpoint. So this is another one of these hurdles that I was referring to in trying to develop therapies to try to treat this. We don't even know if it's one disease. Well, and I can tell you, I know it, it seems like in popular press, we use the terms interchangeably, dementia, Alzheimer's. Oh, it gets yes. kind of confusing. Yes. I don't use them interchangeably. No, but, I don't. But yes, in, do. in the general, it is. All Alzheimer's is dementia, but not all dementia is Alzheimer's. But Alzheimer's only counts for about 75% okay. of our dementias. All right. So it does dominate. Oh, it is the dominant form. Yeah. It, yes. And it is, you know, the impending epidemic of our generation because as our population ages, it's becoming a much more prevalent disorder.
well, what are the stakes here? Like how many Canadians are suffering this disease and, and at what cost? Right now, there's probably over 470,000 Canadians with this. And the economic impact is great because these individuals are requiring nursing care. And it's not only that, it's the family because members of the family can no longer work because they're at home caring for this individual. So the socioeconomic impact is truly immense for Alzheimer's disease and the other dementias. In addition to being a researcher, you're a clinician yes. for people with brain diseases. What do you offer your patients suspected of having the disease? Well, I think that the most important thing I can offer is a diagnosis. They come in. All they know is that they have cognitive problems. They have memory problems. Sometimes they're terrified. Sometimes they're denying them. Often, they don't have dementia. They have depression. Hmm. It's really difficult to differentiate depression from dementia in some people. If you're in your mid-70s, your spouse has recently died, things aren't going well, you might be depressed. And if you're depressed, your memory doesn't work the way it should, your cognition doesn't work the way it should, and people go, oh, you know, he's getting dementia, and they end up seeing, no, no, they, they have depression. And so, you know, you have to determine, does this person have dementia or not? And if they do have dementia, what type of dementia do they have? If they have a type called normal pressure hydrocephalus dementia, then maybe we can refer you to a surgeon and have a procedure done that might be of some benefit. If it's the other types, then, you know, we have some medications. They don't work terribly well, but they're the best that we have at the current time. These medications slow the progress, but no, don't arrest no, no, it. No, 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 no. Uh, they don't slow the progress. They are symptomatic agents. So by that, what I mean is as follows. If somebody gets a strep throat, so they have a streptococcal infection of their throat, if you give them aspirin, takes the fever away, helps with the pain, but the strep is still growing there, that is a symptomatic agent. Uh -huh. It doesn't influence in any way, shape, or form the natural history of a strep throat. Similarly, the drugs that we have currently available for Alzheimer's disease are symptomatic agents. They temporarily help with the memory problem, but ultimately, the final point is the final point, and it doesn't influence the natural history of the disease. And how much do we know about generation to generation in terms of the disease being passed on? I know a lot of people worry yeah. about that. Most Alzheimer's that we see is not genetic. Most of it is sporadic. A small percentage, you know, about 5% does have a very strong genetic component, but most of it happens. And when you were talking about trying to give patients a diagnosis, especially for those of us in the aging category, we often worry about memory loss as a precursor or perhaps an indicator of mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. I've heard a saying that if, if you forget where you put your keys, that's not necessarily Alzheimer's, but if you don't understand what your keys are for, that might be an indicator. Certainly. Everyone loses their keys. Everyone misplaces things. And, you know, if you have a strong family history of Alzheimer's and you lose your keys, they're in there going, oh, no, it's finally happened. You know, no, no, relax, relax. Forgetting things is forgivable. Okay. Let's move into the world of Alzheimer's research. I understand there are essentially two primary avenues to try and solve the disease, molecule and biologics. Do you mind giving us a little primer on these two research pursuits? Certainly. So currently in 2019, if somebody's trying to come up with a therapeutic, an agent that will help somebody, we do have these two avenues open to us. The first one is what we call small molecule. So that is something like aspirin, like penicillin in the world of chemistry. It's a small molecule and it is uh, something that an organic chemist can make. Now, the 
other alternative are these biologics. These are proteins. These are big proteins. These are things like antibodies and whatnot. They've come to the foreground in the last you know, five to 10 years, whereas the drug molecules, they've been around for a century. So these are the two very different approaches. And you know, there are things, like we said, positive and negative for both approaches as we consider their utility for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. So molecules is a fancy word for drug. Molecules is a fancy word for drug. Biologics? Sorry. Biologics, I would say, is the word for something bigger, an antibody, a protein, something that is much larger. If that was to get to a stage where it's safe and useful for treatment, what would it look like? Again, a pill? No, no. The, these are usually injectables. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, so you don't swallow these. They are normally injected. And the path you went down is molecules. Yes. So big picture, what are the challenges of designing a drug? Ah, oh, there's lots of challenges in designing a drug, especially for a neurologic disease such as Alzheimer's disease. I mean, our task is we have to sit down with a blank sheet of paper in front of us and hopefully not a blank mind looking at it and <laughs> doodle up a molecule, doodle up a structure that we think can bind to amyloid or bind to tau or somehow influence them. But that's not enough. When we design this molecule, it has to have the ability to be swallowed, to be absorbed, to make it through the liver, to be distributed in the blood, to get across the blood-brain barrier, and to get into the brain. I really find the blood-brain barrier in the liver most annoying as a drug designer. To me, the perfect person would have no liver and no blood-brain barrier, but such individuals do not exist. That's not going to happen, don't No, you? no, it's not going to happen, but I can wish. So let's turn to the work in your lab, starting with how and when you landed on the decision to focus on stopping these two proteins, yep. tau and beta amyloid, from mm -hmm. clumping. What led you to think that's the way to go? I've been working on this a long time. We're um, talking three decades uh, now, are we? Uh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yes, it's a reminder well, of I our success. I didn't mm -hmm. want to – that you have uh, a few gray hairs here today, Don. That's because I only have a few hairs. Um, <laughs> so I've always found the brain fascinating. The brain is what makes you, you. It is the most characteristic organ in your body. And so, you know, I've always felt very strongly about it. And certainly then if you look at the diseases that are afflicting humanity, Alzheimer's disease and dementia, they're amongst the worst. It robs you of your memory. It robs you of those things that make you, you. And so because of this, I really felt quite compelled that. And when I was training, I really found these stories to be among the most heart-wrenching, the families who are being destroyed by having a family member with dementia. And so because of this, I started in the early 1990s. And at that time, certainly amyloid and tau were just starting to come up, you know, as important elements. And so we joined that bandwagon way back then. And in terms of the design of the drug, what are you trying to do with these two, the beta, beta amyloid, amyloid and tau? tau? What are you yeah. trying to do? There are a variety of approaches to it, and other labs around the world are taking various different approaches from us, but our uh, approach is as follows. When you have beta amyloid, all by itself, just sitting there all by itself, it's not toxic. Right. It's when it becomes a dimer or trimer. That's two or three of them start to stack on each other. And so I often compare it to uh, piling logs into a log pile. Right. The one log is fine, but you get two, three starting to pile, that's a problem. So I look at our drugs as bumps on a log. And so if I can come up with a drug molecule that will bind to beta amyloid, such that when the next amyloid comes along, it can't stack itself on top because there's that bump there, then it'll keep them in that 
unaggregated form and therefore keep them non-toxic. And the exact same thing applies to tau. When it's unaggregated, okay, aggregated, problem. So you mentioned the first sort of step in your research is designing the drug. You do this with computer modeling, is that right? Yes, we do. So it's trying to design a hand to fit into a glove. We used to talk about trying to design a key to fit into a lock, but that's not accurate because a key is stationary. It's fixed. It doesn't change its shape and the lock doesn't change its shape. When you're trying to design drugs to fit into receptors, that receptor can be a moving target. It can sometimes change its shape. And that's why I say we're trying to design a hand to fit into a glove. This is a dynamic fit. We think we know the shape of the glove, that is the beta amyloid, mm -hmm. and now we have to design the hand. That is a molecule which will go and bind to beta amyloid. So to do that, we do a whole bunch of mathematical calculations and simulations in the computer and try to design molecules that we think will work. And once we design them, we make them. How do you know what beta amyloid, for example, looks like? Well, we don't. In medicinal chemistry, this is this whole area of designing drugs, we always talk about the gold standard is a crystal structure. That is someone fished out that protein or fished out that thing and, and determined its shape. Well, you can't do that with beta amyloid. It's oily, it's gooey, it just doesn't do that. And so because of it, we do know the atoms that are in it and what it's composed of. So therefore, we do the sophisticated mathematical modeling and say, well, you know what? We think that's what its shape is. We think that's what it looks like. Is there ever a time, you think, where we actually will be able to identify exactly the property and makeup of beta amyloid? I remain optimistic, but, you know, if you're in drug design, you are, by definition, a pathologically optimistic person. Okay, so where to next? You've, you've designed, I don't know, in terms of your computer modeling, how many compounds, sample oh, compounds? Oh, we have designed many. Um, What's many? Um, so, I mean, if, I, if you want me to date back to the beginning, we probably have designed 30,000, 40,000 molecules on any given time. We have one particular molecule that we are focusing on, and we make analogs of it. I call this the methyl ethyl propyl futile approach to <laughs> chemistry, where we simply make analogs of it and hope that... Analog is which? Uh, analog is if you have the first molecule that works, you've designed a molecule that fits in. And then we take the molecule and we break it down into its bits, and we then systematically alter all of these bits and try to optimize the molecule in a piecewise fashion. And every time we make another different variant of it, we call that an analog. So over the years on your computer, you've designed many, tens many, of many. thousands, yep. right? So which, how, how do you know which ones of these to take to that next stage, which I guess is the lab? It's a complicated process. And so we design molecules and then we sit back and go, are they drug-like? Does this molecule look like a drug? Because all Alzheimer's is dementia, but not all dementia is Alzheimer's. Well, all drugs are molecules, but not all molecules are drugs. I could dream up a molecule. You could swallow it and be blown apart in your stomach and never go anywhere. Or it doesn't have what it takes to be absorbed, or the liver would destroy it. So because of that, it has to have drug-like properties. So we design lots and lots of molecules, but then we sit it and go, yeah, you're kidding. That's not a drug. So when you say that's not a drug, you mean it's not safe? No, no, I'm saying that you know, it doesn't have what it takes to make the journey from gums to brain. Uh, I see, okay. Uh, you know, if you swallow it, it's going to get destroyed in the stomach. It's going to get destroyed in the liver. Got it, it doesn't have what it takes to do that journey and to do it well. 
So what percentage end up going to the lab to be made? Oh, small, probably under 5%. But I mean, I do have an awful lot of synthetic chemists in my lab who are work long hours synthesizing and making molecules. So once you're into the lab with this small, small mm -hmm. percentage of molecules that you've yeah. designed, how many compounds emerge from that stage? Oh, we probably only advance about one in a hundred. Wow. Yes. And those are the ones that go to the next stage in terms of animal modeling. Yes, that is right. So give us a sense of some of the results you've had. Well, if I was a veterinarian who specialized in demented mice, we're there. I mean, We've got it solved. We have cured Alzheimer's in mice many times. But, you know, there actually seems to be a difference between mouse brain and human brain. I know, shocking though it may sound. And so even though we have had compounds that have worked quite well in the various models that are around, taking a compound all the way to human trials is prohibitively expensive. We've only done it once, mm -hmm. and that was not a success. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it's tough to know. The question that is also asked is, how good are the animal models? How do you know? How do you know when that is safe enough and perhaps effective enough to go to a human clinical trial? Well, I think that answer is determined by who's willing to back the trial. So by that, I mean a trial is going to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. You're not going to get that from a CIHR government grant. And so you're going to have to partner with industry so we have to go out and present ourselves to potential industrial partners and say, this is the target. This is the molecule that we have. Here's the data that we have on it. And they may look at us with enthusiasm or more likely with skepticism and try to determine because ultimately it is a company that's going to foot the bill. Mm -hmm. And it was easier 20 years ago. And the reason I say that is, is that the last 204, I, yeah, I keep track of them, the last 204 trials in Alzheimer's have failed. And how many trials have there been? About 204, 204 for disease-modifying trials. Right. You know, if you're a corporation and you have shareholders and you're going, yes, let's invest several hundred million in this, somebody might say, the last 204 trials have failed. Why should you have optimism? And so this really is a stumbling block in going forward. These trials are so expensive. The need is so great. This is a substantial risk. It's a substantial risk for an organization to take. This is not designing an antibiotic. So with that research landscape in terms of there's a need that you absolutely, because of the cost, must partner with industry. Yes. Where do you go? Well, there are still companies that are interested and so we do interact with uh, a number of corporations that are still interested in Alzheimer's disease. And I mean, they have to look at it from a risk-benefit ratio from their own personal point of view. Certainly, if someone gets a drug that's going to work, it's going to sell well. It's going to do well. But the odds are certainly pitted against you. So are you able to give us a sense of – I know this is predicting the future, but in terms of where you're at with your compounds and molecules in terms of safety, effectiveness, and – a company willing to partner with you? Yeah. So, I mean, in my own highly unbiased way of making this observation, we have gorgeous molecules. Uh, I don't get out much, so I find molecules gorgeous. <laughs> and uh, they are pretty. They are very pretty molecules. They have what it takes to go from gums to brain. They bind to amyloid. They bind to tau. They do what they're supposed to do. They are very effective. And we have a relationship with a French pharmaceutical company that is looking at co-developing these particular agents with us. 
But this is a long road and there are many potholes in it and any one of these potholes can stop you dead in your tracks. And so we're realistic, but we're optimistic. When you say it's a long road, are we talking about the logistics and negotiating in terms of legalities? No, well, or? I mean, that, that's, that's you know, some of the potholes, certainly. Yeah. But, I mean, the other ones are we have done toxicity studies. But, you know, once they start to advance and they start to make it to early human studies, new toxicities can emerge, new problems can emerge because we're dealing here with an older population, uh, a much more frail population, and your molecules have to be a little more gentle. So you're not locked in on a timeline right now in terms of when you think what, um, what you're working on now could go to human clinical trial? I I have optimism that we will be declaring a clinical candidate sometime in mid-2020, but we have to bounce down that pothole-laden road that I mentioned, and any one of those bumps could slow us down. You actually had an experience, right, if I'm right, with a human clinical trial for Alzheimer's when yes. you were back at Queen's in the late 90s. Yes, that's right. We developed a compound called Alzamed, clever name, eh? a medication for Alzheimer's. And, you know, yeah, we took You went it to all phase three. We went to phase three. It was in 2,000 people. It failed. It's probably one of the 204 trials that are out there. And so we tried. We failed. But I don't really regard that as a negative because you learn. You learn an incredible amount from each failure. You know, I'm considered to be one of the cheerleaders for the amyloid hypothesis. Yeah, and I go, you're standing and you're looking and there's so many different ways you could go. There's so many different paths you could go down. And every failure takes another one of these paths off. And so it's helping us. So I don't think we should look at it negatively. I think we should look at it as an opportunity. It sounds like you're on the verge of getting to another yeah, human clinical we hope so. trial. Yes. What's that mean to you? A hell of a lot. We have been, you know, doing this for 25, 30 years. The few hairs that I have left are, are indeed graying. And so I would like to think that I have a shot at getting a compound here that would make a difference. And so I feel actually quite strongly about that. You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, a podcast about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. We're speaking today with Dr. Donald Weaver, co-director of UHN's Kremble Research Institute and a pioneer in the search for a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Don, there's a story you tell of a moment where I would maybe even call it an epiphany that led to you going down this road of research today. It goes back to your fourth year of med school, is that right? Can you tell us the Boxing Day story? Ah, uh, yes. Being a medical student, I had the joy of working the Christmas vacation. We had just done our clinical rounds of having seen all the patients, and it wasn't a happy event. We had just seen about 30 individuals, you know, many of whom were devastated, and it was really quite sad. I was back sitting at the nursing station, uh, starting to do notes because we all have to do the notes. And at the nursing station, there was a radio playing very quietly in the background, playing some very happy, joyous Christmas music. And during that time, one of our patients had a cardiac arrest and wasn't doing well. And I was sitting there struck by the incongruity of it all, of listening to Christmas music while you know somebody is struggling for their life. And the angst that that family was going through, the emotion that that moment was steeped in. And that certainly was one of the times when I went, damn it, I have to study brain and I have to do what I can to come up with therapies for people who have brain diseases. And part of that epiphany, I guess, that the effect it has is that 
when you finished med school, you went on to become a neurologist, but you also decided you needed a PhD in chemistry, which is, I understand, a very unique set of skills. Yes. uh, Some people would say crazy, but yes, the word unique is much more applicable in my mind, yes. And getting those skills was not a smooth journey for you. No, no, it wasn't. I did a residency and became a neurologist, and then I went back and did a PhD in chemistry, which is a little unusual. Most people do a PhD before their MD if they're going to do it, or combined, certainly not afterwards. It wasn't the most financially intelligent move of my life. Also, finding a chemistry department that was willing to take me it was also a wee bit of a struggle. They were wondering, you know, you're a physician. What do you want to do a PhD in chemistry for? And I kind of went, you're a chemist, and you don't understand the value of your own discipline? So you were told, basically, don't do this. Yeah, yeah. There were chemistry departments that said, no, what's wrong? Don't you like medicine? I said, I love medicine. But I think that chemistry has something to bring to medicine. So, yes, I did a a PhD in organic chemistry. Anybody who's applied to medical school has fond memories of their organic chemistry. That counts as sarcasm. And uh, it tends to be a, a rather stressful course for many people. Where does all this determination come from? Oh, well, it must be my mother. She tolerated me. That's resilience, isn't it? <laughs> okay, yeah, resilience. Yes, that's right. I like that word too. Like, just like unique. That's a much better word. For a number of years, you had a successful practice going and, and lab. Still do. Mm-hmm. In, I'm, I'm going back in oh, time though. Oh, yes. In Halifax. Yes. What convinced you to uproot your research, lab, your team, your family to come to Toronto? I liked Halifax, still do like Halifax. Uh, one of my sons still lives in Halifax. And I must say the uh, seafood's much better. This was an opportunity. I am committed to drug molecules. I'm committed to advancing drug molecules. The facilities, the laboratory, uh, resources, et cetera, here were sufficient that it would uh, certainly fast track and improve our likelihood of success in this endeavor. We talked at the outset about the stakes of these degenerative brain diseases, dementia, Alzheimer's, some are calling an epidemic. Yep. Do you feel pressure? No, I suppose just because everyone's failing. So if everyone's failing, you go, well, if I fail, I'm in a crowd. I'm in good company. I feel pressure in terms of we have people who donate money to us. Mm -hmm. We have families who have a loved one with dementia, and they are helping to support us. Do I feel pressure from them? No, they're not pressuring me, but I feel an obligation to them that – We would like to deliver on our promises, at least to do our best to come up with something that works. Yeah. Medical research takes time. Certainly does. How do you reconcile then that need? I don't know if it's like a friction, but that need for a cure with the rigor that science requires. That can be frustrating, but you know what? It's necessary. If you rush it, you get a bad product and the end result is not good. So you go quietly. You move slowly and you do it right. I'd love to know your approach to failure because we're not taught how to deal with failure and Mm. you probably face that in your lab a lot. Oh, yes. I mean, we say it's called research because you have to repeat everything. It's just not called search. We fail and we fail. And, you know, we don't look at them as failures. We look at them as stroking another wrong route off the map. And if you do that, you can you know, look at it in a positive way. I mean, every time we get a positive result in the lab, everyone gets excited. Ooh, you know, this worked, this worked well. We had a lab meeting this morning and we were talking about some positive results and you, know, you could feel the excitement in the lab. And oh, oh, wow, that, was, that molecule, that behaved really well. You know, that, those are good properties. We're happy. That's a nice thing to happen. I'm curious in this work, is, is there ever a sense of isolation for you? 
No, we have a large lab, and so we have diffusion of of misery when things fail. <laughs> so we all sit around and go, well, you know, it didn't work, but better luck next time. And there are so many groups around the world working on Alzheimer's. We may not always share results because it's a competitive space, but there are other people to commiserate with. And do you ever have doubts? Hell no. I, you know, remain passionate about what we do with just a hint of arrogance. And I think that that's necessary if you want to design drugs. You have to think that you're the one who's going to get it, although deep down in, you know, that you're likely to failure is very high. I understand you write poetry. Indeed. Where Alzheimer's disease is a central theme. Yep. What's the story behind that? Well, I call them therapeutic poems. I see families that have uh, Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, I don't do a lot for them, to be blunt. I give them a diagnosis, but I don't really have anything that works. And the families are struggling. And so occasionally I write a poem. And I used to do that more so in past. I've been doing a bit less lately because of other time commitments. So, you know, I write poems and the, some families like them. Uh, you actually hand the oh, poems I have, to the I patients? Have, I have given them to the patients, yes. And the families? Uh, regrettably, one was an English major and I got a critique that was mm, perhaps <laughs> less than kind, but unfortunately probably accurate. But I like to say it's the heart in it that counts. I've submitted some to journals. Some have been published. I certainly enjoy it. I've written a short story that was in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Um, so we've had uh, a number of these things out there. You know, I kind of like writing it. I'm not great in English uh, by any means, but um, it's fun and I enjoy it. What kind of reaction have you gotten from families and patients? Usually cheerful and in a positive way <laughs> because they're suffering and they're suffering at multiple levels. And I think they're frustrated. They don't know if other people appreciate what they're suffering. And I think that this indicates to them that there are people who do understand. Is there anything in this act of writing that's therapeutic for you? Oh, certainly. Seeing patients every week for whom I have to give bad news, you know, that's not pleasant either. And so writing like this is something that I enjoy and it lets me express some of my own thoughts. Do you ever get weary of that not being able to offer anything? No, no. I've been at it for many years, and uh, every patient is an individual. Every family is an individual family. You learn something from every family, from every patient. You enjoy the moments that they do have with them. And, you know, because of that, I can't say as I get down from it. I mean, it's, it's not a happy work sometimes, but the interactions with other people certainly has its own rewards. Poetry, of course, is a form of storytelling. I understand you also use this to inspire your team. Tell us about the Friday meetings. <laughs> yes. Every Friday morning, we have a meeting at 8 o'clock sharp, much to their delight. Uh, we go over our results, but I start the meeting always with a story, a story of a patient. And, of course, I have to be careful that no details are given out, but I keep them for sufficiently. Yes, yes, for privacy reasons. I keep them sufficiently anonymized that no one knows of whom I am speaking. But I tell them. This is a story that I saw, you know, in clinic this week, and I run it by them, and I do that every week just to remind them that, yes, they're there designing molecules and using mathematics to design molecules that will bind to amyloid and tau, but the end result is a much more personal picture. It's got a human face on it. I don't mean to belabor this point, but you've, you've, you've been at this for a while. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you, yeah, you've made that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is this personal for you? Uh, certainly it is. Yes, as I said. 
trying to come up with things, seeing patients all these years, it's very personal. Have you thought at all about your legacy in this world of trying to solve No, Alzheimer's? no. Hopefully that's not what's motivating me. If it was, I'm in the wrong area. You know, it's a puzzle. It's a wonderful puzzle. And if you are working on puzzles and you solve one, you feel good. And this, to me, is one of the biggest puzzles out there. And if we are the people who can put the pieces together and come up with the answer, the inner feeling of happiness will be sufficient. Thank you. So what should we look for next from Dr. Donald Weaver's lab? Well, probably more failures because the road to success is littered with failures. Do we think there's success down the road? Of course we do. We wouldn't be up there every day doing what we're doing, but it's going to continue to be a long struggle, but I remain optimistic. Dr. Donald Weaver, Senior Scientist and Co-Director at UHN's Kremble Brain Institute. Thanks for speaking with us and continued success. Well, thank you ever so much. That's a wrap for Season 1 of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. We've loved hearing from you throughout the season, and please keep those comments coming wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can always reach us by email. That's Behind the Breakthrough, all one word, at gmail.com. There's so many UHN researchers pursuing cures and new treatments, so if you'd like to hear season two of the podcast, please let us know. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and a big shout out to our dedicated production team. That's Damian Kearns, Tim Chipman, Leah Zeltzerman, Jordana Goldman, Jesse Park, and Katie Sullivan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.